Thank you, Jeff. And it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very sorry. I know the governor is very sorry that he can't be with you this morning. Uh, he had planned on it. We had an unexpected emergency, as Jeff mentioned. Uh, he's here with you in spirit, and uh, I know we'll have further opportunities to talk uh, in the coming weeks and months with him. Um, but thank you for having me. I think I've spoken with you at this conference for the last four or five years, and it's always been a really good and interesting conversation dating back to when I was working uh, with Bernie Sanders uh, down in Washington, D.C. And I think it's fair to say we're at a moment here at this conference, this point in time, uh, after this legislative session where there's a lot to celebrate. Um, there's also a moment of challenge, uh, which I think each speaker so far has, has indicated. And so I want to talk a little bit about both of those uh, as we go here. And I, too, had the chance to listen uh, to former Vice President Gore speak this week, and uh, it, it reminded me that there's nobody who can put the, connect the dots better on climate change than Al Gore. Uh, he has all of this immense knowledge in his mind, and he has traveled and seen all of the things that he's talking about. And it was a compelling reminder of the reason why we do the work we do in renewables, in energy efficiency, and clean energy, uh, because of all of the various threats uh, to our economy, our quality of life, uh, that climate change represents. And Al Gore laid that out for a number of us this week and reminded us why, why we're here doing this type of work, uh, why we're responding to that challenge. Um, so let me, let me run through some of the things we have to be really proud of here uh, in the last four and a half years during this administration. And I couldn't be prouder to be the governor's chief of staff and to have served uh, in the public service department uh, prior to that. And I see a few of my former colleagues here, and it's good to be back with them. So we've celebrated just a few weeks ago over 16,000 clean energy jobs in Vermont, a really astounding number. Um, I can think back to... Uh, even before my first time at this conference, I can just think back to uh, when I started with Bernie Sanders back in 2009. Um, I don't think anybody would have believed that in this short a period of time there would be this many jobs in clean energy in Vermont. Um, and, and that's a theme that I've, I've continued to look back at is, is if you look at 2009 and you look at where we are today, the progress is immense. We are the only state in New England uh, year over year that has lower residential commercial and industrial rates for electricity uh, from, from this June to the past June, only state in New England. We now have the second lowest rates in New England. We are competitive with our neighbors. As we are making this transition, we're doing so in a smart way. We are locking in stable and long-term prices for energy, and we are not exposing ourselves to the volatile fossil fuel-driven marketplace that has made New England one of the most, if not the most, expensive electricity markets in the country. So there is a real economic benefit for ratepayers, for every Vermonter, for what's going on with renewable energy in this state. We are, through energy efficiency, using a whole lot less electricity than we would be otherwise. If you go back to the year 2000, when we started with Efficiency Vermont, and you come through today, and you look at our projected electric demand, it is roughly 13% less than it would have been otherwise. So our job, in terms of powering this economy with renewables, is that much easier thanks to energy efficiency, and as we've heard previously, we are actually avoiding and deferring certain transmission projects thanks to energy efficiency and solar. So we're, again, saving money, all Vermonters benefiting. We have gone from having one wind project uh, in Searsburg to well over 100 megawatts of wind in Vermont. We have more than 10 times the amount of solar installed or on the way today than we did when the governor took office. There we go. 
and this didn't happen by accident. We doubled, uh, through the work of the legislature and the administration, doubled the standard offer program, increased net metering more than sevenfold uh, in that period of time. And as Jeff mentioned, there is now a, finally, for a lot of folks in this room, I know they've worked on this a long time, there is a renewable energy standard in Vermont, which means that for the first time, all six New England states are participating in the renewable energy market uh, on a relatively level playing field uh, when it comes to that issue. So everybody should celebrate that accomplishment. That bill is a good bill. It's going to serve us well. And one of the things about that bill that's most exciting, I know, to the governor is the way that it changes the model for energy in Vermont. The way that it actually leapfrogs and the, the way that we actually lead is not simply in having a renewable energy standard the way that a number of other states do, but it's in putting our utilities in a position to work with partners to actually make a difference, uh, not just with electricity, but with heating and with transportation, to start the challenge and start working towards having cleaner uh, thermal and cleaner transportation. So we have been to a number of homes around the state where customers have had insulation, they have had solar, they have had uh, cold climate heat pumps, they're using 70, 80, 90% less oil uh, to heat their home, and they're doing it with their utility, with partners like NeighborWorks and Efficiency Vermont and solar installers and others, and they're able to do it through on-bill financing without having to shell out a bunch of money that they don't have. That is a revolution in energy in this state. Uh, we are one of the first, if not the first, to really go down this road the way that we're doing it, and I think it's going to benefit us for a very long time, and that's a great part of this bill, something that people were skeptical about and something that I think is going to be proven uh, to be a visionary element. So we, we should celebrate that, too. So with, with all of the progress that we've made, with all of the things that we have to be excited about, uh, we know there are challenges. We know that there are some folks who don't see global warming as a threat. We know there are some folks who don't see clean energy as the answer. Uh, we know that there are some folks who are reacting to the idea that we're going to see energy produced in our communities instead of being brought in uh, via power line from some large plant out there somewhere, whether it's a coal or a nuclear plant or whatever it might be. And we have to be smart in responding to those concerns. And <laughs> Before I jump to that part of what I want to say, I, I did something last night that I haven't done in a long time, which is I went and looked at some federal government uh, data, because I've been in state government and I haven't had to look at federal government data for a while. Um, but I went and I did it. And the reason I did it is because I, I'm hearing an argument and I want to I talk about that argument, which is about subsidies. And I think it was four years ago that I gave a presentation at this conference about energy subsidies. Because I can't tell you how many times I hear how many times you all probably hear that the technologies that we're here celebrating today would not be viable without massive government subsidies. And it just has always been curious to me because I think it's fair to say that no energy technology would be successful without massive government subsidies, period. And it turns out that uh, you know, we've made some progress at the federal level in actually starting to level the playing field for renewables, starting to level the playing field. Uh, we have tax incentives. We've had clean energy research beginning to be funded at the levels that somebody would fund it if they thought that climate change was a real threat and that we wanted to move to a different economy. But I want to share some numbers with you to just keep this in perspective. So I did the, the research last night. So oil, coal, and gas, fossil fuels have had subsidies for a very long time. Everybody knows that. 
what's maybe not as well understood is that they continue to get subsidies every single day, massive subsidies, well over $100 billion projected in the next 10 years. And these are energy sources that have been around for a long time that probably don't need the help of the federal government, companies that are making hundreds of billions of dollars in profit. Um, so if you look at that, and then I looked at what would it cost if we were to extend the investment tax credit for solar and the production tax credit for other renewables, including wind and biomass, and have those be permanent in the tax code, just like some of the oil tax credits are permanent in the tax code. And I had to look at this number a few times because I just didn't believe it. It was $35 billion over a 10-year period is what the federal government says it would cost to make those tax credits permanent. So we are going to put, we are on schedule to put well over $100 billion into fossil over the next 10 years. We refuse as a country to extend the tax credits for renewables to level the playing field, even though the cost would be far, far less. When you hear the arguments about subsidies, you have to keep these figures in mind. I want, I did a, I'm a history major, so I did a little bit of history digging last night on just one of the subsidies for oil, the oil depletion allowance. I, anybody know when the oil depletion allowance went into effect in the federal tax code? It was actually 1913. Celebrated its 100th birthday just a few years ago. 1913, the federal government said, we need to have an incentive to explore for oil. We're going to allow companies to deduct some of their uh, work and not pay as much in taxes. That incentive, that tax preference, whatever you want to call it, that subsidy remains on the books today. President Reagan was uh, in favor of removing it in 1985. Um, he didn't get the job done, unfortunately. President Bush talked about potentially removing it in 2005, but instead signed a bill to extend it. That's just one example, one example of many. The subsidies for fossil fuels are on the books. They're in the code. They don't expire. The incentives for renewables expire, are constantly under threat. We do not have a level playing field. Do not let anybody tell you that there is a level playing field yet for renewables. If we were serious about dealing with global warming, we'd want to not have a level playing field. We'd want to tip the scales in favor of renewables and stop subsidizing fossil fuels. One more number on this point before I move on. The Congressional Research Service every year, their nonpartisan uh, research arm of Congress, goes and looks at how much we've spent on R&D as a federal government on different energy technologies. So you go back all the way to 1948, just post-World War II, and what do you think that the biggest source of energy, the biggest recipient of federal funds is uh, for federal research dollars? Nuclear. Nuclear. Nuclear has gotten almost 50% of all federal research and development dollars since 1948. Who, who's second? What category second? Fossil fuels. Fossil fuels is second. Fossil fuels comes in at 25%. All the renewables, solar, wind, hydro, biomass, geothermal, all of the energy efficiency technologies combined don't even hit 25%. That's since 1948. So I said it's got to be different now. I've got to look at a more recent period of time. So I looked at 2005 to 2014, and lo and behold, nuclear still gets the most in federal research and development dollars. Nuclear got $11.66 billion in federal research and development dollars in the last 10 years. Fossil fuel got $10 billion. Renewables got 7.87. Do not let anyone tell you we're at a point where subsidies for renewables equal subsidies for fossil fuels and nuclear. It's not true. And the data is there to prove it. So that's my tangent on that. I'll go back to.
I'll go back to talking about the challenges that we have here in Vermont. And they are. We have real challenges, and we have to be smart in what we're doing. And one of the things that I think we need to remember is, and that I remember all the time, is that renewables can be characterized as being uh, only benefiting certain people. And in my experience, that hasn't been true. In my experience, when we think about renewables, we have to think about, yes, there are developers who, 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 do, these, who do these projects. There are also businesses that we visited around the state, some of whom are renewable businesses and some of whom happen to be in other lines of business and just make a product that goes into renewable energy. So we visited with NSA Industries in St. Johnsbury in Lindenville uh, last year. They make a whole bunch of different products, but they also make a product that goes into solar trackers that are manufactured in Williston through All Earth. There are companies like that around the state, so we've got to remember that they're in this business too. We have to remember that there are customers, thousands and thousands of net metering customers at this point in time, who are benefiting from having a share of solar or having solar on their roof or buying into a small wind or hydro project and are able to actually reduce their energy bills or lock in stable prices for their energy over time. We have to remember that of those 16,000 jobs, that actually the majority of them, or at least the plurality of them, are folks in the energy efficiency industry, people who are going into your attic and insulating, people who are air sealing your home, people who are installing the new energy efficient boiler. We have to remember that the fuel dealers, some of them, are working with us and are in this industry now, are selling cold climate heat pumps, or are partnering with the Department of Public Service and VSCCU and Opportunities Credit Union to make financing available. So renewables is not just about the developers, it's about broad benefits. And you know what? We've got to work to make them even broader. We've got to work to make financing and leasing even more accessible. We have to make the revolution that's being discussed accessible to everybody. And that's one of our challenges. We also have to talk about the things that have already been done. Because public service board process and the, the whole uh, you know, process of developing energy in this state um, is, is something that gets a lot of attention. And we have to remember that in the legislation that was passed this last year on renewable energy, there were also several new siting-related pieces that were put into place. Towns now have automatic party status in any public service board proceeding. I would have argued that they probably could have had that status anytime they needed it, but it's guaranteed now to ensure that towns have a voice in that process. That process can work. That process sometimes means that a project doesn't get built. You can ask the folks in Springfield who wanted to build a biomass project, you can ask some of the folks who have tried to build uh, you know, new wind projects in certain areas of Vermont. Sometimes the process says no, that's okay, that's the way it's supposed to work. People should remember that, that the process doesn't always say yes. Towns are gonna have a seat at the table. Communities can now offer their own local screening requirements for solar, and as long as they don't discriminate against solar compared to a Walmart, they can put those into effect and the board will implement them. We haven't even given that a chance to work yet. Uh, I don't know that many towns have actually had the chance to even put screening requirements into place, much less to bring them before the board. That will happen. We have to give that a chance to work. We have statewide automatic setbacks for solar now. Towns can argue to have them be greater, but they are statewide minimums that offer a minimum level of assurance that there will be a setback for solar projects. These are all things that may not have been 100% popular in this room, but they were things that were meant as a good faith effort to try to bridge the gap between those who may be opposing projects and those who are trying to build them. I think we should give those things a chance to work. I still believe the public service board process does work, can work, and that the Department of Public Service can help also bridge the gap between projects and communities. And we have to take that time and make that effort. 
we have to move forward in a smart way because this is not an industry that can fail. This is not a set of projects that can fail. We can't get renewable energy wrong. We have to get renewable energy right if we're going to respond to all the things that you know Jeff and I and others heard from Al Gore earlier in the week. So we are at a moment of great achievement. I hope you celebrate that achievement here over the next day and a half. We're at a moment of challenge. I hope we think creatively about other ideas, how to, how to address those challenges. And from the administration standpoint, uh, you know, our minds are open, our doors are open. We, we want to talk with everybody who has ideas, and we look forward to working with all of you to continue the progress. Thank you.